Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn again in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 and read with me again verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side, begging. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm sure you can relate to this experience, that when you are going through times of great personal trial and difficulty, it can be tempting to blot out the needs of others. Maybe you can think of a time when you were going through a very difficult experience and you were so occupied with yourself and the the challenges that you were in the midst of that the needs and the difficulties of others seemed as though they were out of sight and out of mind. Well, when we see that tendency within ourselves, I think we ought to remember how utterly different we are than our Lord Jesus Christ. To my mind, these verses in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel highlight the beautiful heart of our Lord Jesus Christ in a most special way. There he is on the road to Jerusalem, there to offer his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He is on the death march. Before him lies betrayal. Before him lies the agonies of hell. And if anyone had ever any right to focus upon themselves and to blot out the needs of others, surely it was this one, the Lord Jesus. And yet, at that very point in his life, we see how tender and sensitive he is to the needs of those around him. There are those two of his closest friends, the sons of Zebedee, two of his disciples. And they come to him with this presumptuous, prideful question. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. We want you you to have us sit on your left hand and on your right hand when you enter into your kingdom of glory. Now, Jesus, having literally the weight of the world upon his shoulders, he does not snap at them. He doesn't embraid them or, or be harsh to them. No, he very gently corrects them. He reminds them that there is a cup of suffering that they must also endure, but that that is not is to give to them. And the other disciples, they hear about this, you see. They hear about this, this request from these two disciples. And so now they are all offended in turn. They are offended that this should be asked by them as though they thought themselves to be greater than others. And so there is this turmoil, you see. There is this discord within the circle of the disciples, And Jesus, you see how patient he is with his little flock at that point. He he gathers them around himself and he gently reminds them that the purpose of being his follower is not that they exercise lordship over others. No, you see, 
But even the Son of Man himself, even Jesus Christ, came not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to serve others, even to lay down his life as a ransom for many. You see how sensitive Jesus is here, not to the burden and calling that he has only, but to those around him and the cares that they have. And I think that when we consider the beautiful heart of the Lord Jesus at this pivotal hour in his mission, it is brought all the more uh, out beautifully when we consider his interaction with this beggar, a beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And I hope that as we consider the Lord's dealing with him from verses 46 to 52, we would understand not only something of the beautiful heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, that heart of love, but also how the love of Jesus Christ lays hold upon a sinner's heart and soul. And so with the Lord's help, we will consider simply a blind beggar shown mercy. A blind beggar shown mercy. And we will see simply Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus. Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. And Bartimaeus is healed by Jesus. Well, congregation, that language of crying out to the Lord is a very common one in the scriptures. Crying out to the Lord. Our psalms are filled with them. For example, one of the psalms that especially speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, Psalm 72, verse 12, says concerning Christ, he shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also in him that hath no helper. What do we mean when we speak of crying out unto the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let me use this illustration. Perhaps you can consider a newborn baby. A moment that you've seen that new baby come out of the mother's womb, be handed to the new mom. And what is it that you, what is it that the nurses and the doctor and anyone present, what is it they are listening for? They're listening for that cry. That crying out of utter neediness and helplessness. For that little baby, he or she cannot live from himself. He is dependent upon the nourishment of mother, the protection of his parents, and one of the signs that something is wrong is that there is no crime, because you see that crying is the first sign and stirring of natural life. Well, so too, when we would speak of the newborn soul, the newborn Christian, we have also to speak about the first stirring, not of natural life, but of spiritual life. That Faith in the heart of a new Christian, it is first expressed through that crying out to the Lord. It is saving faith in its neediness and helplessness going out to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So it is we see an example of this in real history as it's recorded in verses 46 and 47. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. What is what is it that causes this man to cry? I don't think it's left to our speculation. This man, Bartimaeus, he cries out to Jesus because he knows that he is blind. That's how he's described in verse 46, blind Bartimaeus. I don't know if perhaps you know someone whom you love that has a seeing disability. There's a problem with their eyes. And if you do, then perhaps you know what a precious gift of the Lord it is to have sight, to be able to see. Each one of you, I trust, you got up this morning and you opened your eyes and there was the world around you. All the vivid colors, all the beautiful displays of God's majesty and goodness in creation. There are the smiling faces of your loved ones. There is the blue skies. But you know, that was not Bartimaeus's experience. He opened his eyes, blackness. Opened his eyes as wide as they could, blackness, blackness. He cannot see as a man who is completely blind. And in verse 51, where he speaks to the Lord that I might receive my sight, the Greek uh, verb there has the idea of receive again his sight. And so it appears that this is a man who, in the natural sense, was not always blind, but through an injury or, or through something else he used to see and now he cannot see at all. And you see, the way the Lord dealt with him was the awareness of his blindness, the knowledge that he was blind, was what led him to cry out unto the Lord. And if we would draw a spiritual lesson from that, let it be this. Now, the Bible teaches also that there are those in the visible church those among the confessing people of God, perhaps even those here in our gathering this morning, who are even worse off than Bartimaeus, even worse off because, you see, they are blind spiritually and do not even know it. So Jesus himself speaks of this in his letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. Where Jesus says, So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not, knowest not, that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. How terrible it is to be blind and not even to know it. And the Bible says there are such. 
And in the Lord's dealing with us, sometimes it is this that leads us to cry out unto the Lord, the knowledge that we are blind, the knowledge that we do not see the glory of Christ in the scriptures. We do not see the holiness of God in his law. We are not sensitive to the majesty and grandeur of the gospel. If we are blind to these things, if they, they really should be the reason we cry out unto the Lord. Well, there was also this reason that Bartimaeus cried out unto the Lord. He knew that he was broke. He knew that he was broke after all. There he is. It says he's by the highway side begging, begging. Here is a very poor man, you see. He being disabled and without any means of support. He cannot provide for himself, and nor can anyone else provide for him. He cannot afford a home in which to lay his head on a bed. He cannot afford the means of providing food and water. He is a very poor man. The only way that he can provide for himself, you see, is to sit there, sit there by the gate of the city Jericho with his hands outstretched, seeking that someone would look upon him in his blind, in his poverty-stricken condition, have some pity upon him and throw some food or coins into his hand. And of course, I trust that there are very few of us who would have the experience of this man, Bartimaeus. Very few of us would know what it is to have no place to lay down your head at night, have no means of support for yourself, either through your own ability or from others. By the standards of the Bible, I trust that all of us are rich, and by the standards of much of human history, wealthy. And of course, the Bible teaches us, does it not, that sometimes those natural, um, those natural blessings, those material goods, can mask a kind of great spiritual poverty. So it is that Jesus said earlier on in this very chapter, in verse 24, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So we be careful here. We do not say that there's any particular spiritual merit or any particular moral good in being in poverty and being poor. At the same time, we also recognize that riches can be a snare. Plenty and um, much uh, provision in terms of our natural life, it can be something that masks and hides a deep spiritual need if we are trusting in those things of the world. And so it is that the poverty which is profitable 
is that which is sensed and felt and known such that we cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ. I say this further, but why he cried out unto the Lord Jesus, it was this. He had heard something about the Lord Jesus. I gather that from verse 47 where it says, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. So however it was, there's this great crowd of people. They're leaving the city Jericho. And one of them mentions within his hearing that Jesus of Nazareth is among them. And so it is that the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in some measure, having heard of him, persuaded him that he must cry out unto him. I wonder what it was he had heard. Perhaps he had heard something of his miracles. How here is one who does mighty deeds from the power of God. How he feeds the hungry, how he raises the dead, how he casts out demons, how the wind and the waves obey him. Surely he had heard something of how these miracles were used as revelations of his love. He performed his power, you see, in order to care for those who were in need. Not like the the miracles of Moses raining down locusts and frogs and boils upon a guilty people. But his power displayed the mercy of God, the undeserved favor unto those whom everyone else counted out, everyone else ignored. Yet... It revealed a heart of love and kindness towards those in need. He had time, you see, for even the tax collectors and the prostitutes and was named as a friend of even these notorious sinners. And surely he had heard something of his preaching, how here is one who revealed God to people through his sermons and through his prophetic ministry. He spoke, you see, of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And he proclaimed salvation through his person and through his work. Something of these things he had heard surely of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this also was used through the Lord's leading to make him cry out unto the Lord. But we say this as well. He knew this finally, that time was running out. Time was running out. How many months, how many years had this man been there by the city Jericho? How many feet had he heard shuffle past? There in utter darkness with his hands outstretched, he hears the voices and he hears the footsteps Here they come, now they're gone. Here they come, now they're gone. He has but a moment before they pass by, and now he knows that Jesus is here. He is here now. He is is here sitting foot in the streets of Jericho. As far as we know, Jesus had never before set foot in the city of Jericho. As far as we know, he never went back. And so it is, this man knows that he has this very brief window, this this fleeting moment 
in which the Lord Jesus is here and he is present. Something of that urgency surely must motivate us to cry out unto the Lord. If we see ourselves to be spiritually blind, spiritually impoverished, without God in the world, without the one thing that is needful, even Jesus Christ and his salvation, ought we to understand that there are no guarantees of second chances? The Lord Jesus comes to you now through his word, through the preaching of the gospel. And there's no guarantee of second chances. It is today that is the day of grace. So it is that this man was led to cry out unto the Lord for these reasons. But what was it that he cried? What was it that came forth from this man's heart, soul, and mouth? It says in verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. What is it that strikes you about these words of the Lord that were spoken by this Bartimaeus? Well, the first thing that jumps out to me is that word Jesus. Jesus. He cries out to Jesus. And even from being small children, we've been taught what that word Jesus means. It was spoken, you see, by that archangel Gabriel, who pronounced that his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's a name, perhaps, that we've heard from our smallest childhood throughout all the development of our, of our lives. The name Jesus means Savior. Now think with me for a moment. The eternal Son of God surely could have chosen any number of suitable names for himself as his personal name. It would have not been improper we would think if his name had been something that means the sinless one. If he had had a name that signified something like beloved by the Father. Perhaps a name that means the judge of the living and the dead. And yet the Son of God appointed this in his great wisdom as his personal name, the name Savior. Oh, in this name, Jesus, meaning Savior, there is an endless ocean of love that no man can plumb the depths of. And yet, the weakest and smallest of Christ's lambs can safely wade into him. In this name, Jesus, there is a mighty tower where even the most guilty, hell-deserving, frightened sinner can flee to for refuge. Here is the name Jesus, the only name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And wherever we hear the name Jesus spoken in, in our hearing, whenever we see it written on the page, do you understand that the very Son of God is preaching unto you a gospel sermon, a gospel sermon in but five letters. 
And he is saying unto you that I am the Savior. You need a Savior. I fit and suit your needy soul like a hand fits into a glove. So it is that we see that this man cries out to Jesus. But what else can we see? Well, he cries out to the son of David. He says, you see, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And indeed in the Greek, that's actually so important that this man puts it first. So he first says, son of David, and then Jesus. So here's a man who knows his Bible. Surely we remember from our earliest days on our father and mother's lap, hearing of the exploits of this David, a mighty king who slew Goliath, a man of faith, a man after God's own heart who was appointed for a great purpose as the anointed one of the people of Israel, a great king. But the most central thing about this man, David, is that God entered into a solemn covenant with him. You see, he promised that from the line of David would become an even mightier king the likes of the world has has never known. He would be appointed a kingdom not merely over one nation, but over all nations, over all peoples, over the whole world. Through his reign, the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. His would be a kingdom not of this world, not according to the weakness and wickedness and foolishness of worldly kings and kingdoms, but a power that comes from above of invincible might and sovereign power and a kingdom of grace, of forgiveness, a kingdom purchased by his very blood, whereby he as king reigns over a kingdom of grace for all those appointed unto eternal life, a kingdom of eternal glory in the world to come. Such is comprehended in this title of Son of David, God's chosen king and the king of salvation. So it is that he prays for the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. But he also says these words have mercy. Mercy. What is mercy, congregation? Have we heard a word so often that we forget its basic meaning? Is mercy what you deserve, what you can earn? What can be granted through your effort? Not at all. Mercy is what you do not deserve. Consider this beggar. He knew much about mercy. There he is, and he ekes out this meager existence by the gate of the city Jericho because he lives on mercy. He makes himself look as pitiful and pitiable as he can. He makes clear that he is going to perish and die. He has no means of survival. He has nothing that he can give by means of earning anything. He is unworthy of the least favor blessing. All he can do is put himself forward in this condition and plead 
that someone would show pity upon his misery. So it is that this man, knowing that he is addressing the very Jesus Savior, the very Son of David, the very Messiah, that here is one, if anyone could help, surely it was this one. Surely if anyone would be moved by pity for a perishing, worthless beggar, it would be this Jesus. And notice how personal this cry is. He says, have mercy on me, on me, on me. That's how it is, you see, with the true cry of faith unto the Lord Jesus. It is always personal. It always places you exactly as you are before the throne of grace, exactly as you are there pleading before him. Not as one who deserves anything. Not as one who can earn anything. You plead for mercy. How is it that he cries out? How can we describe this cry? Well, the first thing is how sincere it is. You know, this word cry could also be translated scream, screech. There he is, and he's in front of all these different people. He doesn't care what anyone thinks. He doesn't care what anyone will think down upon him. No, he knows that here is Jesus. Here is a Savior. I I need a Savior. Mercy, son of David, mercy. It's like a volcano where it's building up the pressure, building up the pressure until it can't contain that lava anymore and it bursts out and blasts off. So it is that the heart of this man cannot contain the urgency of this cry. Notice it's very persistent, this cry. He says as well there in verse 48, And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Again and again he cries out. And you notice the people around him say, you be quiet now. Don't you understand who you're talking to? This is the great Jesus we are talking about. He has more important things to do than look after a blind beggar like you. You just be quiet now. So it is when there's the first stirrings and flickerings of faith in the soul. Sometimes all the enemies of our soul will cry out against us trying to silence that cry. Sometimes it can be enemies within the doubts and fearful blasphemous thoughts that would say that surely there's no point. Surely it is worthless to cry out. Surely Jesus will not have mercy upon one such as me. Or maybe even where you become to take these things seriously, begin to earnestly seek the face of Jesus Christ. Maybe your friends and family even to say you're taking this far too seriously, you see. Surely all is well with your soul. Surely you don't need to take this so urgently. Surely you don't need to be this fervent and zealous about it. And yet, where you see this true work of God's grace in a soul, you see how it will persist throughout all of this opposition. 
until it achieves its results. You notice in verse 49, and Jesus stood still. Is there one here who has been crying out to the Lord persistently, repeatedly, and it seems as though there's been no answer to you yet? Let me tell you this on the authority of the word of God, that a cry such as this will not go upon deaf ears. Jesus cannot deny himself. He will not forsake the needy who cry unto him. So it is we see this cry unto the Lord Jesus from Bartimaeus, but we also see that Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. And that is clear in verse uh, 49. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. Now this language of coming to Jesus is also frequently used in the Bible. And how shall we distinguish this from crying out to Jesus? Well, if crying out to Jesus is faith in its neediness and helplessness, coming to the Lord Jesus represents faith as it is a choice and an act of the will, a true intentional act of the inner man that goes out unto the Lord Jesus in faith. So it is that if you see someone that you trust on the other side of the room, you don't keep them at a distance, but rather walk up to them. You come to them in an act of trust. So it is with this. What can we say about Bartimaeus's faith in coming to the Lord Jesus? Well, the first is that he comes in response to a call. He comes in response to a call. Verse 49, and Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Look at the great personal authority of the Lord Jesus. There he is. He has set his mind and heart upon this needy beggar, and he commands him with all the authority of the Son of David, all the authority of the Son of God, that he come unto him. And so it is that we can say that there is that authority with it wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that Jesus Christ speaks in the gospel with authority. Well, maybe there's one here who says, well, I would indeed come to the Lord Jesus. I would trust in him if he were actually standing in my presence as he was before Bartimaeus. But Jesus is not here today. Jesus is not addressing me personally. This is not the same thing at all. All he has done is sent one of his messengers to speak to me before this pulpit. It's not the same thing at all. Well, remember, my friend, that even in the case of this Bartimaeus, Jesus saw fit to use messengers. You notice how it's put there in verse 49. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called And they call the blind man. 
saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. So however it is, Jesus summons some of the people around him, and he says, Go give this message. And so it is, they deliver the message on behalf of Jesus. They say, Be of good cheer, don't be discouraged, don't despair. You see, he's calling you, you personally. Jesus has called you to come unto him. And so it is that the authority of this message depends not on the, me- on the instrument that's used, not on the herald or the messenger, but on the author of this message, upon the son of David, our, our Savior, the Christ. So it is we ought to do well to remember that always. I think we ought to fear that in the Reformed churches, sometimes there is an unhealthy regard upon the one who delivers the message. And so it is, perhaps you go home and you ask yourself the question, you know, what is it that uh, was preached today? And you're talking to someone else, perhaps, and they say, well, I heard a sermon upon this and this text, and it was blessed to my soul. And And so if you're speaking to someone who hadn't heard that message, is it the case that it instantly goes to, well, who preached the message? How was the message preached? Was it delivered with the right amount of persuasion, with the right amount of engagement and so forth? Well, surely we ought to recognize that those things are so very secondary. And what matters about the preaching of the word of God is that we hear the voice of Christ in the scriptures. And so it is that I can tell you today that Jesus Christ calls you. He calls you through his messenger and he says, come to me. He speaks to you and to you and to you, every one of us. And yet the sobering truth is that that authoritative gospel call and summons would have no power to bring us unto Christ. So sinful and dark is the heart of man, except that that effectual, invincible, all-powerful call of the gospel through the Holy Spirit unto the Lord's chosen ones should bring them unto salvation. And so it is that you see in this man's case that he comes without hesitation It says there in verse 50, And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. You see, this poor man, he doesn't have a whole closet full of clothing in order to choose from. No, he only has this cloak, this garment. He doesn't have a bed to lie down in. I know he just has this cloak. Very often they wouldn't even have bowls in which to collect their coins. And so they would just sort of wrap this cloak around in a sort of begging bowl. And they would would use it as a container. So it is, you see, here is a man throwing away virtually all that he has in the world. He throws away his cloak, doesn't care about it. And he comes unto the Lord Jesus without hesitation. So it is, I can tell you also today, my friend, that whatever it is that may be preventing you or hindering you or delaying you from coming unto Jesus, it is an enemy of your soul. However, you may think it to be good or necessary. If it comes between you and Christ, it must go. And how much more if there is sin and temptation ensnaring you? 
if the leading of the devil is whispering to lead you away from the true and sound faith of the gospel, if any relationship or anything else would hinder you from coming unto Christ, then that all must be cast aside. Only this is important. The Son of God summons you unto himself, unto his salvation, and you must heed that call. So it is that we see not only Bartimaeus calls to Jesus, but Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. Finally, this, we see that Bartimaeus is healed by Jesus. Well, what a striking thing it would have been there to be in that scene. There is this blind man having been there perhaps for years. And Jesus, hearing his cry, stands still and beckons him to be called. All eyes are on Bartimaeus as he shuffles through the crowd towards the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, throughout all the Old Testament scriptures, there had never been a case of a blind man being healed. Throughout all the different servants of the Lord, no matter how mighty or powerful through God's grace, it had never been done. And so surely all knew what he, was, what he wanted. All knew what he was seeking after. And yet now we have the Lord Jesus asking him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? Jesus, you see, asked this question. Is it because he didn't know, he couldn't have figured out what this man wanted? Surely not. He knows all things. He knows the heart of man. Surely this question was asked in order to draw out the request. And so it is that when we are in the presence of a king, Jesus wants specifics. So it is you may be seeking to pray unto the Lord and you are hindered because you don't understand this point. Jesus wishes for you to speak specifically of your specific needs. So it is that you go to Jesus and you say, Oh, Lord, save me. Jesus would have you to think on this. Save you from what? Save you to what? Why do you think that I can save you? Jesus wants you to pray in specifics. Jesus, save me from my sins. What sins? Why are they so serious? Jesus wants specifics. So we're in the presence of a king. We speak distinctly of specific needs. Notice how he puts it there. The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. You say this in the second place. When we are in the presence of a king, we can ask for great and grand requests. He has the authority to give. And what more could we ask? What greater blessing could we ask for than a spiritual sight of the glory of Jesus Christ? Yes, we can pray for specific needs in our life. Yes, we can pray, Lord, help me in this situation today. But how much more have we need to pray for the great request of seeing the glory of the Lord. 
Maybe there's someone here who is discouraged and depressed because it has been far too long since you saw the glory of Christ. You've come to see it's not automatic. You go through the scriptures, it's not as simple as saying, well, there, there is the glory of Christ. Well, you see, we're dependent upon the Lord Jesus for every revelation of his glorious person and work. And so we must pray for it urgently that we would see a sight of his glory. What will thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight. His first sight that he saw upon receiving that blessing was the face of his Savior. And so Jesus says, It wasn't your love for me that saved you. It wasn't your felt need for me that made you whole. What does he say rather? But that it was his faith. Is it the strength of this faith that, that did the job? Was it the case that Jesus looked at him and said, well, you've done something good for me, and so I'm going to do something good for you? Not at all. You see... It can be the weakest faith. It can be the most uninstructed faith, the most problematic faith. But if it is true faith, then the strength of the one you look unto will save you by means of that faith. And so it is that the Bible speaks so clearly about this. Romans chapter 9, verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and, not, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And finally, you see that the result of this healing was that he followed Jesus, and immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Having seen a sight of the Lord Jesus, he could not depart from him. He followed him in the way to Jerusalem. He followed him in the way. And strikingly, this is one of the very few miracles which was recorded upon a specific man. His name is recorded in the Bible by Mark, most likely because he was known, according to Mark's original audience, as one who had been touched by the grace of the Lord Jesus, and so most likely as one who is continuing to follow Jesus. So it is that if you or I have seen a sight of the Lord Jesus, we can never depart from him. We stay close to him, closer than a brother, closer than a friend. And it seems to me that when I consider this man Bartimaeus, that he could never be the same way again. Surely, he could never pass by a beggar in need and think about them in the same way, having been in that position. So it is, if we would ask the question, what does it mean to follow the Lord Jesus today? Surely it is this. We desire to have the heart of Christ such that those in need, we show them the kindness and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in turn. May God give us strength so